Truly, it took a storm in the waters of our life as Americans to get our attention to racial injustice. And as white Americans watched and many got involved, it began to change our lives, this storm. We'll paint the background in this sermon, and you've heard some of it in the time for all ages. But for our reading, let me draw from our African-American colleague, the Reverend Mark Morrison-Reed, who incidentally with his wife is a clergy couple, and they're the ones who married us 23 years ago. In a new book, The Selma Awakening, he has studied the experience of the well over 100 UU ministers who responded to Dr. King's call and went to Selma 50 years ago this week. We were with Mark this week at a minister's gathering in Orlando, as Phyllis has said, where we heard the stories of several of these ministers whose lives were shaken and changed. Mark writes, How could those who went to Selma take an experience that stood so far outside the norms of their liberal religious communities and that ran counter to the rampant individualism and Unitarian Universalism at that time and offer it to their congregations without putting their ministries at risk? Being in Selma taught them to step out of their individualism and think about community first, to confront authority, and yet, within the movement, to, to obey it. They participated in a black religious tradition which asserts that salvation in its essence is collective. Its leaders did not denigrate the intellect, but neither did they make an icon of it. They wielded it in the service of justice. Those who assembled in Selma, and especially the emotionally restrained, spiritually skeptical UUs, were swept up by a power and a cause far greater than themselves. Their experience was visceral, tactile, and deeply emotional. They were intimidated by hate-filled mobs, taught by the knot in their guts, re-educated to fear the police, called niggers and nigger lovers, thrown in jail. Their lives were threatened, their colleague was murdered, and they found both the justice system and the state now working against them rather than for them. For a little while, they became one with the oppressed and disinherited. Their, the fear that gripped them taught them. Crowded together, they linked arms and stood shoulder to shoulder, despite the cold, comforted by an old woman's hand, singing and singing and singing, sharing beds, eating communally with the poor black folks who had little but gave everything they had. They gave up control because they had none. Following orders saved their lives. They were the students. The black folks, young and old and poor, knew more than they about how to survive in the South while living with dignity and joy. The visitors knew who the teachers were. The very name Selma conjures up for us the memory of a bloody turning point in America's struggle to realize its founding dream. 
For months, indeed years, Martin Luther King Jr. and other activists had been pressing to end segregation and to allow African Americans to vote. Courageous students had gone with poor black sharecroppers in hostile, to hostile courthouses across the Deep South to help them register, only to find themselves most often turned away and beaten, while the local blacks were then evicted from their farms and houses. Busloads of freedom riders had faced brutal beatings as they tried to integrate bus and train stations. The progress was agonizingly slow, and the price was paid in human blood. And so Dr. King and his team decided on a massive march to force President Johnson to press for voting rights legislation. For in a majority black region, voting was the key to change. They would march from Selma, where a voter registration drive had long struggled to, su to succeed, to Alabama's state capital in Montgomery. On March 7, 1965, known ever since as Bloody Sunday, they set off, only to be turned back with sickening violence at the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the edge of town where a brigade of Alabama State Police beat them and turned them away. John Lewis, now a respected congressman from Georgia, was one of them. Here's how he describes what happened to him. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, bullwhips, tramping us with horses, using tear gas. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. My legs went out from under me. I thought I was going to die. I thought I saw death. Lewis only suffered a fractured skull. Many others were also injured. But it was a turning point, for with the advent of television, millions across the country could watch the bloody beatings from their living rooms. And they were shocked. The next morning, Dr. King issued a call to clergy across the country to come to Selma to join him in trying again. They came by the hundreds, including well over a hundred Unitarian Universalists, almost a third of all our parish ministers at the time. One of them was James Reeb who had been the associate minister at All Souls Church in Washington. I knew him well. He was brutally murdered on the streets of Selma on the first day in town, before he even got a chance to march. A layperson, a UU layperson from the Detroit church, Viola Liuzzo, also came, and she too was murdered as she was driving other volunteers to places where they needed to go. A number of other people, both local and visitors, were also murdered, both black and white. All men in those days, the ministers who dropped everything, as Liotza did, left their families at home and came. For those who survived, it changed their lives. They found themselves living and marching with local black families, accepting the leadership of Dr. King and other blacks, and worshiping with others from faith traditions 
across the religious spectrum at Brown Memorial AME Church, which was the focal point of everything that was happening in Selma. Bloody Sunday had given President Johnson the political cover that he felt he needed. Before the march got underway again, he called a joint session of called for a joint session of Congress to act on voting rights legislation. To protect the marchers, he placed the Alabama National Guard under federal orders. On March 21st, several thousand marchers set out again. James Reeb never got to go. Where the highway narrowed from four lanes to two, a court order required the numbers of marchers to be cut to just 300. Those who continued slept in open fields for three nights before finally reaching Montgomery. Among those who started out were the board, the whole board of the UUA, led by our then president, Dana Greeley. Another person on that march was 14-year-old Linda Lowry, who lived in a Selma housing project. Long afterwards, she would recall it this way. I remember then my, deter my determination to walk from Selma to Montgomery, and my daddy said I couldn't go. Because, you know, I was only 14. And I got several females, Miss Foster and Miss Boynton and Miss Lily Brown, and I can't think of Mary's last name. But they were all responsible adults, and they told my father they would watch me, so he finally relented. And two weeks later... On March 21st, I was packed and ready to walk from Selma to Montgomery. We stopped and camped, and see, let me tell you, it drizzled rain. But the camp was really nice, because we sang songs and people told stories. That morning, the next morning, I came out of the tent, and the Alabama National Guard had been federalized to protect us on this walk. And I focused in on these three guardsmen standing by their jeeps. They had guns, and they had those knives, bayonets, affixed to the guns. There were hundreds of troops, but I saw only these three people. I felt that they were there just to kill me. This was my 15th birthday. I have never in my life been as frightened as I was on that walk that day. I realized that those people that were there with those guns were the same people that had been beating me on that bridge. And they were there then to finish off the job of killing me. I didn't care that morning if anybody ever voted. All I wanted to do was get back home to my daddy because I knew he was going to protect me. That morning the march started and I remember one person and one thing he said. There was a guy named Jim Letterer. Jim was a white guy with one leg. He walked on crutches. <coughs> he walked on crutches all the way from Selma to Montgomery. He carried a flag sometimes. Jim said before he let anything happen to me, he would lay down and die. He didn't even know my name. He was there. He would die for me. 
That made me go all the way from Selma. After three nights camping on the ground in those open tents, they made it to Montgomery. And as America watched this spectacle of determination and courage, they pressed Congress to act. And it did. The new law passed quickly, and the president signed it. With the passage of these new laws and the shift in America's attention to the war in Vietnam, the troubled waters of the great struggle for civil rights gradually subsided. Though the work was continued, has continued over the years since then with much less drama. Much work remains before blacks enjoy the same educational and economic opportunities as the rest of us. But thanks to the vision of Dr. King and the courage of so many who put their lives on the line, our nation has come a very long way. And thanks to that board, that band of UU ministers, our lives have changed as well in our UU faith tradition. No longer do we accept that ours is a religion only for educated, upper-middle-class whites. No longer do we assume that it is our privilege as whites to be the leaders in pushing for racial justice. No longer is it unthinkable for us to bring our hearts and our hands to worship and to join in song and in prayer with Baptists and Catholics and Jews. No longer do we look down our noses at anything spiritual. Those whose lives were so radically changed in Selma came home and led the way in opening our eyes and our hearts. Though we have far to go, and we're still a heavily educated, a heavily white educated movement. We have far more minorities in our congregations and in our leadership than we used to. We have far more interracial families. Our music is far more contemporary and our worship makes a conscious, if still limited, effort to welcome African Americans. We often speak of our goal today as accommodating other cultures, all cultures. We call it being multicultural. We don't try to choose among the more specific images that are sometimes used like melting pot, mosaic, tapestry, even soup or salad. We choose instead Dr. King's image of the blessed community. Our goal is simply to welcome each other as we are and to seek out the divine image in every one of us. Those white ministers who went to Selma discovered firsthand how this might feel. When they got home, writes Mark Morrison Reed, their world had changed. They began intuiting that perhaps it was they themselves who had been shackled. If they had dared to say what they had discovered, it might have gone something like this. I have just gone through an experience that has shaken me to my core and awakened me. I return to you feeling that we, as much as any white Southerner, need to reshape who we are and what we believe, what we do and how we relate to one another, how we determine what is important and how we express ourselves. An experience that grabbed hold of me and lifted me toward rapture and that scared the hell out of me. But I never felt more alive, miserable, and grateful than in Selma. 
To a less dramatic but just as life-changing degree, is this not the central purpose of the church? To grab hold of us, to challenge our assumptions, to shake us up and wake us up. And in the end, as Mark suggests, to come to see the many parts of ourselves no longer at odds with one another. And to see ourselves as no longer at odds with each other across lines of race and class and so much else. Selma, he says, was about being in authentic relationship to one's values, promises, and hopes, and honoring them by committing one's life, even unto death. And in the process, he suggests, many, for the first time, felt whole. And is that not also the bottom-line purpose of the church? and of our spiritual journeys to make us whole. Despite these threats, back a page. In some way, those who went to Selma must have realized that something ultimate was at stake, something worth risking their lives for. When they came back, they began to understand what it was. And though you and I today don't often expect to risk our lives, I think that we too in some way know what's at stake. It's about, in the language of our covenant, it's about living together in the spirit of love. Or you might say it's just about standing on the side of love as we build together that beloved community. In the end... We know that what we give to this work of transformation and wholeness and love has an ultimate call on our resources, our time, our energy, our money, our love. That's something to reflect on and pray on in the days ahead, as very soon we ask each other for ongoing pledges of support for the work we do together. Those in our UU churches in the Deep South knew this, During the civil rights struggle, they often spoke up for justice in ways that brought great risk. They spoke out even though they were often kicked out of their rented meeting space as a result. I think in one congregation, they had to meet in seven different places over a period of a couple of months. Each one kicked them out when they found out who they were. They were threatened with bombs, had crosses burned on their lawns. They found themselves shunned and harassed in their communities and sometimes lost their jobs and professional credentials, like several members of the Birmingham church. Their churches received so many bomb threats that the Birmingham church administrator answered one more call by saying, you better take a number, there are others ahead of you. Despite these threats, they actively supported the Selma marches. Marchers. They they reached out to the families of those killed in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Thankfully, the UU Church itself was never bombed. It might have been different if the participation of those two girls in those classes to prepare them to integrate the schools at the Unitarian Church had been more widely known. 
In general, our UU churches in the Deep South were a haven of support for both their members and for those in the community who actively worked for civil rights. You and I share the same call to stand on the side of love. And though we don't face the same risks, what we say or do can make a difference. One small but potentially important action we can take is coming up. The NAACP is asking for our help to support a task force on diversity to make recommendations to the Leesburg Town Council. A number of you were with us at a preliminary meeting to hear this proposal, and some spoke eloquently. The public hearing is now scheduled for March 10th at 7.30 to act on this proposal. We ask you to show up, to say a few words, and invite at least one person you know from the Leesburg community to join you. A business owner, maybe, clergy, community leaders, or just plain folks to show up and speak as well. It's important not just to pass the proposal, but to demonstrate strong support for this for this task force so that the city council gives it a, a meaningful work to do once it is established. This chapel was built by freed slaves, as all of us know, a powerful symbol of the oneness we strive for. How can we draw on it to strengthen these connections? All, all of this for us is part of the challenge of Selma. It's about reaching out beyond our fears and beyond the pull of self-absorption to build relationships across our community. It's part of our call to stand on the side of love. Let me close with these words of Gordon Gibson, which close his book on the witness of our southern UU congregations. Gordon was someone I met for the first time at this conference this week. Noting that as he says, an informed and empowered laity is an awesome force. He urges that we need not only to build bridges, but to be a bridge, a bridging institution wherever our congregations are. Our day, he says, no less than the civil rights era of the 1950s and 1960s, contains challenges to core Unitarian Universalist beliefs and values. Today's challenges may be less clear, more multifaceted, but they are no less real. Can we, lay people and clergy, be as effective today in carrying our faith tradition out into society for service and action? Can we today bring our experiences back into our sanctuaries for reflection and deepening? If not, what must we do to change ourselves? and our institutions. One thing we must not do is to reflect on these stories of our UU civil rights activism with pride that we have done so much. Rather, these stories must lead us to understand that we have so much to do.